But I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! Right, lads, time to man. Yeah. Come on. Take your boys to a little corner and teach them how to cry I all don't day. Think that's what What is masculinity? Hi guys, uh, welcome to the second series, the very first episode of the second series of the Anti-Mask podcast, where we make compassionate critiques of masculinities in the 21st century. I'm your host, Stefan Harvey, sadly no longer joined by my former, still much beloved co-host, Alistair Ingalls. He's moved on to better and bigger things. Maybe he'll still lurk in the background now and then, who knows. But uh, yeah, it's largely going to be me going forwards. But I hope to get some absolutely fascinating and lovely guests on throughout the series to talk about all things masculinities and gender. Um, I've got a few topics in mind going forward, but I just wanted to get back into the swing of things. You know, we're already into the second month of the year and I thought I'd kind of jump on a bit of a bandwagon by talking about something that's quite pressing in the news at the moment, but speaks to a wider topic that I think relates to masculinity well. So I've called the episode, The Masculine Urge to Always Be Right. And essentially what I wanna talk about today is argumentation, debates, discussion, generally in a conversational style, so oral discussion. And this is kind of like come from a line of thought of paying attention to all the stuff that's kicking off the, in the news about the Joe Rogan podcast and how musicians like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell are pulling their music off the platform because they believe that Spotify is giving a huge platform to Joe Rogan, who now and then has spread dangerous misinformation about COVID-19, vaccines, and other conspiratorial ideas as well. So I thought, you know, when I heard about this in the news, I thought, well, I, you know, I've never listened to Joe Rogan. I'm aware that he's a comedian or formerly was, and he's now referred to as a commentator, if you Google him, which is fair play. He hosts one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And I thought, you know, I'd give him a listen. And the two episodes I listened to were one very recently on which he had Jordan Peterson, the quite renowned right-wing psychologist who fancies himself, as I would say, someone who understands everything on the planet ever. Um, and that's an element of his argumentation that we'll get back to later because that inevitably causes flaws in your arguments because unfortunately, not everyone knows everything. We're only human, Jordan Peterson. The other episode I listened to as well was the one that has basically elicited most of the controversy around COVID-19 and Joe's Wider podcast. The other episode that I listened to in quite some detail was the one that has set off most of the controversy around Joe's Wider podcast and COVID-19 with Dr. Robert Malone, who is a highly qualified and highly accredited physician in the US and has experience in researching, developing and producing several vaccines himself, which again is quite a convenient background to someone 
to get onto the podcast to then spread some quite dubious uh, quote-unquote facts. But what I want to look at from a sort of like masculinity lens, because I'm sure there's all sorts of commentary going on about, you know, factuality, how can we rely on something being truthful and not truthful? What I want to look at is why a lot of men <laughs> feel like they need to be right all the time. Um, and also these two particular guests display two very different methods of doing this, which is interesting as well. I'll talk about Joe Rogan a little bit as well. I would say that I haven't listened to him enough to form a like fully shaped opinion on how he generally goes through making conversations and argumentation, but I like picked up enough from him being the host and interviewing these two figures on the episodes. So basically, I think everyone can identify moments in their life almost daily where a man has like not backed down from an argument. Um, I definitely had it with older middle-aged male family members at the dinner table at Christmas this year, where often because I'm, I'm quite lucky in the sense that my immediate family and then parts of my extended family who I get on best with have pretty similar political views to me. Um, I'd say I'm probably a bit more far to the left, but I also like to hear people out and will give pragmatic responses to people with differing opinions. But I got in some quite heated discussions with male members of the family where it took ages and ages and ages to like come to the conclusion that actually our opinions were quite similar. Often we would both have prejudices about me thinking, oh, older people are never going to have the same views as me and vice versa with older family members thinking it about people in their 20s. And eventually we'd come to you know, some kind of like crescendo of a whole argument and be like, do you know what? Our opinions aren't too different. Let's let's cherish what we actually agree on about a range of things, about, you know, people being underpaid, uh, class issues within the UK, gender a lot. Gender's probably where more conservative opinions have come from my family members on the whole. But it, it it's always such a roundabout, exercise um like you, you go down this very convoluted road of like really heated discussion when actually when you reach the end of a discussion you realize so much of that was unnecessary it was kind of like a fucking therapy session or rather like the ending is like the therapy session where you come out and you go oh yeah i just didn't need to do all that worrying or have all that, allow all that stress to impact my thinking for such a long time. But I did. And I feel a bit silly now because I kind of like wasted a lot of mental energy on that. So I think we've all been through something like that. And for those people out there who identify as male, particularly cis men who are, who are brought up expected to be masculine and present masculine traits like the thing I'm sympathetic of is it's very hard to unlearn feeling like you should be right all the time. And it's 
it's quite a horrible expectation to 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 place on on anyone. You know, there's always like sort of golden kids at school as well, regardless of gender, who are expected to do well, if not be right all the time. And like, it's a lot of pressure because we're all flawed and we're all fallible and whatnot. And I think it must be especially difficult if, I don't know, maybe I'm going to sound like a bit of a dickhead here, but the reality is that, that you know, some people are kind of not that intelligent. Um, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to say that as a, in a judgmental way. It's just like some people can think in more abstract or critical ways than some other people. And then those people who struggle with that forgivably are still being told by society that you have to come up with, with clever arguments and ways of presenting things so that you can constantly seem like you've got the upper hand over someone or a certain group. So like coming back to the podcasts with Joe Rogan, I think what's interesting about those scenarios is that Joe Rogan is unsurprisingly getting alleged experts from their fields onto his show so that he can hear expert opinions and also pick apart their ideas and explain hopefully quite quite challenging high level ideas to a general audience and that you know on paper is quite an admirable thing you know it's it's something i'd like to do going forwards with this podcast if i can build up the traction and get the people involved that i would like to get involved so i think first of all i'm going to talk about jordan peterson um if you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, go away and give him a Google, watch some of his videos, watch how he talks and what he talks about. He's very much a mouthpiece for right-wing men in particular, naturalizes hierarchy in his thinking a lot, which on a side note, I've been doing some reading about the far right and that's something the far right do a lot. I am not going to explicitly call Jordan Peterson an active voice of the far right, but certainly a lot of his ideas that he presents that naturalizes very rigid gender norms are convenient for the far right to capitalize on. So the Jordan Peterson episode has attracted a lot of controversy, largely because of a section in the episode where Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson talk about transgender people. And I think there's like a lot of things to pick apart here, but what Jordan Peterson does throughout making any kind of comment, and they talk about a whole array of things from the environment to gender to art. That was a very interesting thing hearing Jordan Peterson talk about these quite radical artists, be them visual or musical or whatever. And you could kind of like, I kind of got the impression of him like sat behind a window, like wanting to be part of the party and just admiring what they were doing, but never really, never really fully understanding it and only ever intellectualizing it in his own quite conservative, rational ways. Uh, rationality is something I'll get onto in a bit. But they talk about an array of topics and, you know, this is a podcast about gender. They talk about transgender people and, you know, go and listen to it if you want to hear everything they discuss and why there's been so much backlash. Effectively, 
Jordan Peterson comes up with all these different reasons to excuse away why somebody would not or cannot just identify as some other gender identity. Um, there were really, really dangerous bits where Jordan Peterson referenced various academic findings that imply that uh, being neurodiverse is highly tied in with um, gender fluidity and diversity. There's an article in Them which quite rightly points out, so what, even if that is the case? But also, you know, there are neurodiverse people of all genders because it's just a possibility that that's a human trait. He also implies that people who begin to identify as a gender other than that which they're assigned at birth, that those people are just playing, simply playing. And it's it's an interesting line of argument um, because at face value, I don't actually disagree with, with that statement, but I think... And this is something Jordan Peterson does a lot. He, he he uses so many terms and he really like snows you under with loads of words and, and ways of understanding the world that, that sounds clever and convincing to the point where what he is trying to convince you is like a rational understanding of the world actually just breaks down into meaninglessness in a way that he's trying to combat in the first place. So he refers to, you know, the idea of gender play as play. And that I think that's right. Um, so when I was growing up, when I was at nursery, there was, a, there was a dressing up rack. And, you know, there were outfits for presumably very gendered professions. A fireman person, a policeman, officer, a nurse, you know, something definitely back in the 90s people would very staunchly assume is a woman. And then there was a wedding dress. And whenever I went and played on the dressing up rack, at the end of the day, one of my parents would come in to play group and little Steph would be in a wedding dress. And my parents reacted to it in a very lighthearted way, which I like I can't be more grateful of. As far as I can tell, it was never, I was never told to suppress it. I didn't feel like there was any sort of aggressive, violent backlash. And, you know, wearing clothes marketed to women, I don't want to say women's clothes, has been something that I've done on and off throughout my life as a means of play. And more recently, something I've explored outside of the realm of play. And then that's where our interpretation of play comes in and it needs to change because so what if someone's playing is playing still not an exploration of who you really are like if playing is just light-hearted exploration isn't that just one of the most I, I mean I th I'm pretty sure there's a lot of psychologists and philosophers who would maintain that play is actually the ultimate expression of freedom. I've definitely read that somewhere. I can't quote you on who, but that if play is the ultimate expression of freedom and that when someone is playing, 
they begin to explore differing gender identities, more fluid gender identities. Are they not actually embracing themselves in as free a state as possible? And isn't that quite beautiful? So Jordan Peterson kind of like skips that step and he just says, oh, it's play. As if there's some kind of other rule in society, which there is, that people conform to. But, you know, someone that genuinely wants to be free is going to occasionally, if not always, not conform to those standards. So it's just an example of someone who has an agenda. Jordan Peterson's got an agenda. His agenda is combating gender fluidity in this case. A lot of his writing is about stark divisions between men and women, biological males and females, I should say. And I should also add that actually Joe Rogan, I believe throughout the episode, uses definitely the words trans people and I think transgender. They have this whole huge discussion and kind of at the end of the segment, Jordan Peterson, having not had to use the word yet, just says transsexual. So I think that would imply that he's very much more bothered about biological sex. So that's his agenda. And then he quite cleverly, I'm going to say cleverly, like there's flaws in his thinking, but to maybe the average listener, it's quite a convincing line of argument or way of interpreting the world, frames gender play as play, but stops there and kind of implies that play is not serious. And I know it sounds contradictory, but I would say that play is very serious, or at least the process of exploration that comes out of play and also the findings in self-identity afterwards. To move away from gender a little bit, um, just to give a better idea of the value of play, you know, I write and perform comedy in my free time and quite a lot of it socially or politically engaged but quite a lot of it's very absurd. Otherwise it would just be a social or political rant and the aim is to be funny first. So what what can I do but play? And you know, when I come up with a new joke that feels very innocent, very lighthearted, but I hope people find painfully funny, then that's when I'm happiest. And that's when I've been rewarded by my own process of play, of silliness, of meaningless but profound conversations with friends or just talking aloud when I'm by myself. And I think there's huge personal and social value in that. And I think the same should go for play in whatever format. Exploring your own identity comes through feeling unrestrained and that happens by pissing around with your mates or by yourself. And that's really quite healthy. Just a, just a little ancillary note. I, I uh, should acknowledge that, you know, this is the first time I've done an episode totally by myself and I'm not being kept in check by my wonderful ex-co-host, Alistair Ingalls. Um, not picking apart what I'm saying, maybe putting things in layman terms in the way that our beloved Joe Rogan does for right-wing thinkers such as Jordan Peterson. So do bear with me if it's a bit too verbose and, and do provide feedback, you know, like 
Uh, message the Instagram account. Let us know how we can improve things. But, you know, a more interview modelled episode would hopefully be a bit more coherent too. So I just want to chat briefly again a bit more about uh, the episode of Jordan Peterson. You know, I'm not going to delve into details too much. You can go and listen to it. But they talk about other huge topics, particularly the environment. And Jordan Peterson does something similar again, where he kind of like explains away a reality, you know, gender fluidity in the former and the impending environmental doom in the latter. He explains away a reality by understanding it in an abstract way that to a point seems quite convincing. So he kind of just very brilliantly explains away climate change and climate crisis by saying, well, you know, when we talk about the environment, what do we mean? It's it's everything. And of course that's changing. Everything's changing all the time. And again, it's kind of like a valid point that we do just live in a whole ecological system and everything's connected, but it just very largely overlooks the quite evident human impact that has been imposed on the environment and the undesired, inconvenient, more rapid changes that are occurring because of our own use of fossil fuels and other activities that involve environmental degradation. Jordan Peterson prefers to focus on how many young children die from I think carcinogens from open wood or coal fires inside of homes, probably generally in poorer countries where, you know, state managed heating is harder to come by. And this again is a very like interesting rhetorical means of sounding right all the time by detracting from one issue. So in the wider case, he's just detracting from climate change on the whole and saying, oh, you know, well, it's that's everything. So how can we even talk about that? But then on a more like, you know, micro level down to the particulars, instead of talking about all the planes in the sky and the cars on the road and the drilling for coal and the oil spills and all the rest of it, he talks about kids dying indoors. And I don't want to relativize that. Like kids dying from pollution inside of their own homes from from smoke and smog and all the rest of it is tragic. It shouldn't be happening and it needs to be addressed. But the point is that I don't want to relativize it. And actually what Jordan Peterson does is he relativizes it as in, he says, oh, you know, well, in a certain context, something is more important than another thing, you know, that's showing the relation and placing something on a pedestal above or below something. So while he would argue that a lot of people are placing a wider impending ecological crisis on a pedestal, he's taking not an isolated issue, but one particular issue that he would like to draw attention to in order to detract attention away from something so that he can basically convince his audience that climate change isn't worth worrying about. So that's cute. So basically, I'm just kind of exploring here how voices of authority, big public figures, 
are often given a platform and they will tell you that they don't have an agenda. But that's like, we're all human. We're all subjective. We've got an agenda. I've got an agenda. I'm trying to make people think more openly about gender, be more critical minded of masculinity, not strictly just critical. That's actually what I want to combat because, you know, just hating men and masculinities is, or just criticizing, sorry, men and masculinities is entirely forgivable because men cause so much of the problems in the world. But to stop there is ultimately not that productive. And what we need is for men to be self-reflexive, including myself. So I've got an agenda. But I think the healthiest thing someone can do when they're given a platform to talk about a topic allegedly as a voice of authority, I would argue that Jordan Peterson is not a voice of authority on as many topics as he would like to think. But when you are given that platform, to just be very frank about your agenda. And I think actually in this day and age, in this post-truth society and on the internet, a lot of people aren't forthcoming about what their agenda is. And equally, this is there's a wider like societal educational issue where people are not taught to go, okay, then what might this person's agenda be? And be prepared to accept that someone is probably trying to sway them into thinking the way that the person with the platform wants them to think. It happens in almost every case in life. Unfortunately, you could argue that a teacher's doing it. But, you know, you've, you've got to be pragmatic about how you give young people a, a sort of springboard from which they can go on to educate themselves further and so on. But, you know, fucking marketing, adverts, influencers, there's all incentives behind what they're saying and doing to make you think a certain way, purchase something, get involved in some kind of movement. And I'm not saying that's inherently morally wrong. Like life's meaningless. So we give ourselves meaning and probably a large part of giving ourselves meaning is trying to convince other people to do the thing that we think has meaning. So we feel a bit better about ourselves and that's, it's kind of fair play really. But, you know, depends what the agenda is. If it's damaging to people, if it's damaging to people who are gender non-conforming, if it's convincing people that the world around them is not falling apart and that they're not potentially going to be doomed in decades or even less time, then that needs to be picked apart. And I think Jordan Peterson... Well, he does get challenged enough, really. Uh, you know, plenty of commentators do pick apart what he's saying, but it's interesting how he does manage to keep audiences captive. And I think it's heavily tied in with notions of what it means to be a man, that we are told that we are the privileged gender in society. We control things. And when you do or are told that you control things, it's 
usually in your interests to maintain that control. I would argue differently. I would say my agenda is to tell men that actually they need to let go of some of that control. I was going to say delegate, but you know, that sounds like there's uh, terms and conditions uh, or you're a, you're a little, you know, mid manager in some boring white collar firm, but to let go of some of that control and let it be more evenly dispersed among, you know, largely women, but people of all genders among society so that there's just a bit more equality because also, you know, losing power doesn't necessarily make your life worse. I actually think it makes your life better in a lot of cases because with power comes responsibility. But, you know, we live in a generation where everyone's anxious as fuck because they feel like they're completely overwhelmed by life. So, and you know, when you're overwhelmed, it's probably because you feel like you have all these responsibilities. So if you realize that a lot of responsibility that you feel like you should be assuming actually damages other people should be quite relaxing if not liberating to shirk it off but we see all around us in media men who i mean after a certain point have earned their position of voices authority i'm not disputing jordan peterson's years of work in the field of psychology and the, and the fact that he's, you know, been faculty at elite universities. And also that is the case with Robert Malone, who I want to talk about in a minute, who was on the other episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast that I listened to. But these men, often from big academies, from big unis, after a while you know, may have made discoveries that are highly beneficial to human society. But after a while, probably kind of cling on to the idea that they can't be wrong about anything. And that's dangerous because even experts, I don't know, I, I was going to say should stay in their lane, but like, you know, cross-disciplinary thinking is very healthy too. You know, like if you're, if you're a psychologist, then looking into gender isn't a bad thing, but maybe it is if it's damaging to people of various genders. But the point is that experience in one background does not make you a voice of authority on something else such as the climate if you're a psychologist, because there's a lot of scientific knowledge that's required there. I imagine Jordan Peterson's got quite a lot of scientific knowledge, but, you know, not necessarily about ecology, biology and the climate and so on. That a lot of extra knowledge is required. So they should be a bit more self-aware about what they are and are not in a position to comment on like it's the final word. You can still comment on something. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, but you've got to be like self-aware and self-reflexive of your platform and how much influence and power your words can have when you are on, say, a podcast with tens of millions of listeners or you're on a national news channel or something like that. And, you know, maybe you could argue that even though a lot of people who have become kind of interested in besotted with these so-called alternative facts 
alternative news sources in a post-truth society who feel let down by mainstream news sources that I still generally see as quite reputable, you know, namely the BBC, CNN, The Guardian, and so on. And even, you know, more centrist papers like The Times. A lot of people feel let down by these platforms for a variety of reasons. And they go and seek, quote unquote, facts elsewhere because they don't want to engage with sort of like an establishment of information that doesn't seem to be working for them, seems to be working against them. And in many ways is because a lot of these establishment media outlets peddle false depictions of various social groups in ways that are damaging to them as well. You know, even The Guardian, which is is regarded for its integrity and journalism and sort of centre-left views has been called out for quite a lot recently on various articles on trans issues that haven't been as understanding and nuanced as they need to be. And also a sort of self-proclaimed progressive publication doesn't have enough gender non-conforming writers on its team anyway. Gone on a huge tangent there. What I was saying was a lot of these media establishment platforms are dominated by men. I I might just say all, you know, sweeping statement, but all dominated by men. And if men in positions of power, particularly in communications, you know, where men have a control of narratives, of discourses over language, often straight, white, middle to upper class men, who then will forgivably, but also not so struggle to sympathize with people from more marginalized identities, including other straight white men, may I add, just maybe not middle to upper class. The media establishment organizations like these will have writers, thinkers, speakers who have been told that they're impressive members of society, who have been told that they know things that other people can't articulate so well, who have been told that they can explain the world in a way that is worth listening to. And that's usually only the case in a specialist field in which they have a lot of experience. But men are told, no, you can be a mouthpiece for almost anything you like. You're a commentator and you can comment on anything as you wish. Throw your commentate spunk over all the land with your well-thought-out, highly-flawed ideas and communicate them to people who probably aren't that interested. I sound very anti-establishment media here. I very much believe in journalism with integrity and presenting well-researched, reliable facts. I'm just saying there are still sort of structures within media organisations that need to be critiqued a little bit through identity. Not even a little bit, a lot. And that if even if people don't realise what it is about large media establishments that is putting them off, possibly to a large extent, it's because a lot of male voices of authority get a bit too big for their own heads. Just a little, just my two cents there.
But the danger in that is that people then go to quote unquote alternative sources and while feeling disenfranchised are then exposed to factually incorrect sources, which is damaging to themselves and to everyone. And I think that's a decent enough segue onto the episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Robert Malone, who has a wealth of experience in vaccine research and development that I mentioned at the start of the episode. And again, you can, you should go and listen to this episode to see how he and Joe Rogan facilitating him pedal various bits of misinformation about COVID because, because again, it is impressively veiled and certainly Robert Malone's credentials in the first place are likely to convince a lot of listeners that he knows what he's talking about. He does know what he's talking about, but the point is like Jordan Peterson, it's not too difficult to eventually identify the fact that he's got an agenda. And again, that's the case. And there's a more sort of insidious part of Robert Malone's kind of method of communicating to people compared to Jordan Peterson, who's very much just like, I am really fucking clever and better than you. What Robert Malone does, he keeps stressing that he's not here to convince someone of a certain fact or viewpoint. He's just presenting facts and then people can go away and think for themselves. And... You know, when a lot of people talk about um, political theory, there is a lot of thinkers who say that claiming you have no ideology is one of the most ideological things you can do, because it means that whatever ideology you have is probably very normalized in the society you're in, to the point where it almost seems invisible, so that you don't have to claim that you have an ideology. And Robert Malone's kind of like line of argumentation is quite similar to that on a more isolated topic, namely vaccines, because he says, you know, no, no, I'm not, I'm not presenting an opinion here. I'm just presenting facts. But the matter of the fact is that as soon as someone opens their mouth, really, they are presenting an opinion, albeit backed up with facts. But, you know, like I said, we're all subjective and we all have an agenda. So the most humane thing you can do is just be fucking frank about the fact that you do have an agenda. So Robert Malone talks about a plethora of things, all of which are on topics that I can vastly sympathize with as well. And again, I'm like actually identifying more of a parallel here uh, with the, you know, disillusionment with large media establishments Um, more than I thought. And actually, you know, Robert Malone talks a lot about um, various journalistic bodies and their interplay. Um, He talks particularly about Thompson Reuters in the episode because it has, its board members have a lot of involvement with big pharma boards as well, which are all valid things to point out. and, And that's kind of part of why what Robert Malone says that ends up being misleading seems so convincing because effectively the crux of Robert Malone's argument or what what his grievance is i think should not be about discussions around vaccines per se and doubting the efficacy of vaccines what robert malone's grievance is is related to 
the massive interplay, particularly in the US, because I'm speaking as a British person, particularly in the US, the huge interplay between big pharma, private hospitals that run for profit and the US government and its support and interplay with those two circles, with those two industries. Because Robert Malone is basically, I would say, making something of a left-wing critique of how profit-driven healthcare and the US is. And that's really noble, I would say. That's really valid. I believe in universal healthcare. The one thing we don't get to choose is our backgrounds and our bodies. And if there's some kind of slip up with our bodies and it puts our life in misery or at risk, then I think we're entitled to help for that without having to work hard, without having to make a huge expense because life's hard enough. We should get a bit of medical assistance to be able to keep on keeping on. And he, you know, he makes this huge roundabout argument, pulling in loads of different factors and, and examples of systemic connections between the US government, big pharma and for-profit hospitals and how there's an incentive for people to be in the hospital with COVID and to die from COVID. I think what he was getting at is that there were government subsidies in the US for private hospitals because all of a sudden they were being burdened with COVID patients that in times outside of a pandemic, they would not be having to deal with. And so would be able to manage the more typical flow of patients with more ease. So they were being given money because they were receiving more patients, which seems quite fair enough. And, you know, in the UK, it would be great if British hospitals were given more money, especially during a pandemic. So that's a completely, I would say, valid, forgivable, if not admirable thing. So basically, a quite sort of, you know, left-wing emergency policy, especially in the context of the US, where they have private healthcare and state, you know, state subsidies and support are generally lower than that of Western European countries. So basically, the US government was providing a subsidy that was quite abnormal in the context of the US because they were putting, um, you know, a lot of subsidies into US healthcare. I should also add that I think the percentage of US GDP spent on healthcare by the government is a larger percentage than the UK. So even though they've got a far more privatized system, it's way less efficient. So actually even more money was being put into private hospitals. Whether it was efficient or inefficient is another question, but it was just a response during the time of the pandemic. And Robert Malone twists this into a huge argument about why hospitals had an incentive to curb arguments being made by other physicians, most probably himself, and a minority of others who were claiming that there were alternative treatments to COVID that maybe had higher efficacy instead of, if not in tandem with vaccines. 
because he's he's not a complete anti-vaxxer. Dr. Robert Malone is vaccinated himself. He just talks about other possible treatments that I haven't done enough research on to look into the validity of, but I think a large reason for the backlash is that probably they're not particularly valid. But again, I'm, I'm saying that from a position of ignorance. The point is, you know, in this case, that he is a man in a position of authority who also now sees himself as like something as a martyr or a whistleblower against a media establishment who is able to frame himself as hard done by, as somewhat oppressed because he's got a differing opinion. And that's quite dangerous in itself as well. And I think from a sort of masculinity lens would also like speak to and appeal to a lot of disenfranchised men who, although they're, you know, straight, white, privileged in that sense, probably their life sucks. It's not because of their gender. It's not because of their race, but their life sucks because of economic reasons. And then they hear this guy who, you know, on paper knows all this stuff about healthcare and vaccines and so on. And they would, why would they not rally around him? Because they want to feel special. They want to feel like they're they're raging against the machine. I, I like raging against the machine too, but I just don't think I'm particularly oppressed. So you can see in some sense how, again, a privileged person also, a privileged person through their identity and then also through the authority that they've, they have earned throughout their life is then kind of like skewing arguments in a way that convinces people to be skeptical about a generally, you know, positive medical force, which is vaccines. I'm not saying that the, they're, they're going to like save humanity and cure everything ever. I mean, there are going to be other pandemics, especially because of climate change, Jordan Peterson, but you know, definitely less people have died because of it. And the one like actual reference to the episode I do want to turn people's attention to is ironically, you know, this allegedly esteemed scientists, huge misuse of numbers. So Robert Malone talks about how, so I hope some of you have heard that like Israel is renowned for its huge drive with vaccinations and that people have had fourth jabs in Israel largely now. I mean, it's quite a manageable population. There's 9.2 million people in Israel. Key figure to uh, put in the old thinking cap for what I'm about to say. And he, he remarks on how high the uptake of vaccines has been in Israel compared to the more disadvantaged regions of Palestine around Israel where vaccine, he said vaccine uptake, but I reckon it was a lot more to do with availability just because it's quite a, a war-torn colonized part of the world. Um, whereas Israel's resources are a bit more fruitful. So Robert Malone says vaccine uptake in Palestine, but you know, Palestine is constantly being encroached upon by Israel, um, both geographically and politically, and is far less of an affluent country. So I think rather than vaccine uptake, the issue is vaccine availability. But the point is far less people have had vaccines in Palestine. And Robert Malone, who, you know, is meant to be this sort of like uh, big whiz scientist, goes, yeah, well, you know, Palestine has had way less vaccines um, but significantly less deaths than Israel. And I thought, right, you know, I'm no scientist. 
I did math till I'm 18, but um gonna do a bit of bit of numbers right now. So I had a little look into it and it is true that Palestine has had far less COVID deaths on Worldometer. Oh, that's that's what he said people should go and reference. He said, you know, I'm just presenting facts. People can go and check this out on Worldometer. I went on Worldometer, I listened to Robert Malone and 4,875 people have died from COVID on records in Palestine. 9,111 people have died from COVID in Israel, possibly more. I think Israel seems quite concerned with um, presenting a great record on COVID internationally. And also Robert Malone highlights that too. But the point is that almost twice as many people have died from COVID in Israel as they have in Palestine. At face value, that is an undisputable fact. But Robert Malone absolutely does not give any context to the size of populations that those death numbers have come from. So, really conveniently in terms of maths, as I just said, 4,875 people died in Palestine and the population of Palestine is roughly 4.8 million. So I divided 4,875 by 4.8 million and times it by 100. And that is 0.1% of the population that died of COVID. Then 9,111 people have died of COVID in Palestine. And the population is conveniently around 9.2 million people. So I divided 9,111 by 9.2 million and times it by 100. And that is 0.99% of the population. So only 0.01% less than Palestine. So actually, Israel's death rate is slightly, slightly, slightly better. But the point is that there's hardly anything in it. So what I'm trying to say is that Robert Malone has come onto this huge, huge platform, said he's got no agenda and wants people to think for themselves. But then I, I, I can't claim that this was definitely intentional but it was definitely careless. And if it was misleading, he was indifferent about how misleading it was. Came onto a podcast and said, oh, look, way less people died from COVID in a country with way less vaccine uptake. And he just did not contextualize it whatsoever because it's all a question of proportion. The point being that Robert Malone's whole arguments about effectively profit-driven private healthcare are probably very valid. And it's also, what's what's most painful is that a lot of the reasons why people become attracted to, interested by misinformation around healthcare in particular is because of a feeling of disillusionment with healthcare systems, particularly in the US where it's so inaccessible, People spend so much money on health insurance and that's before any medical bills when you actually go to hospital or the doctor. But likewise in the UK where we've allegedly got universal health care, because I'm, I'm not saying it's ever been perfect, but certainly over the past 10 years, spending cuts have just made it harder and harder to see a doctor, waiting lists have increased dramatically and even more so because of COVID, more forgivably, but still quite frustratingly. And it's very understandable why people would go and look for alternative solutions, why they would self-medicate, which is very dangerous. But but I think like forgivable, like I can I can sympathize with that. I've struggled getting the treatment I wanted um, for my own long-term illnesses through the NHS in the past. 
but ultimately, you know, people who don't have the same expertise as Robert Malone, who don't have the same academic and scientific pedigree as he does, are probably going to go and end up hurting themselves or other people by doing stuff that's not scientifically sound. And he has a responsibility for that. And I suppose when I talk about, you know, men always wanting to be right, that's a generally wider masculine trait that needs to be addressed because there needs to be more humility about the possibility that you are, if not wrong, just like not in a position to be totally right about something and that's okay. And that's something that should be addressed throughout society, regardless of class or race or whatever. It's just kind of like, just, you know, let go of the urge to be right all the time because it's actually beneficial and you'll actually learn things. You'll actually hear different people's opinions in a more engaging way. And, you know, it might be beneficial to your own growth. But I've been speaking about the podcast guests on the Joe Rogan experience today. And there's an added layer to that whole kind of men feeling compelled to be right, which is men in positions of power who feel compelled to be right. And then rather than making arguments that just have, you know, ideally very positive moral outcomes for society, go and make very convoluted, but almost very convincing arguments to make themselves sound right to defend their own agenda. And that is not necessarily going to have a positive outcome influence on society. I mean, a great example recently, or just over recent months in particular, is British Parliament. We've got a government that's that's on its knees, like, you know, the Prime Minister's position is no longer tenable. He does need to resign. I'm not going to bat on about that for ages here. Enough people in the media are saying that too, and in Parliament. But you see a government being brought to account quite effectively by journalistic outlets and also a generally more cool-headed opposition. I'm going to, you know, disclaimer, like I'm far more sympathetic to the Labour Party. Uh, not necessarily someone as centrist as Keir Starmer, but the point is that he's a trained lawyer and the way in which he brings the Prime Minister to account is very admirable and a good display of decent politics, regardless of where you stand on the spectrum. And then when you see Boris Johnson and other ministers come back with retorts to Keir Starmer, you know, opposition MPs or journalists in the media, you see them completely detract from the issue at hand. So the reason why Boris Johnson is being brought to account so often at the moment is because he flagrantly broke the rules during lockdown by having parties in number 10 and in his flat. And all he will do is talk about waiting to hear from a report, how well they've implemented vaccine rollout and how they're implementing other allegedly great policies such as levelling up outer regions away from London and the southeast and the UK 
and, you know, being global leaders on the world stage over issues such as Ukraine. And again, it's because they've got an agenda. Their agenda is to completely detract away from the rule breaking that they've carried out, rules that they've made as well, and instead paint themselves in a positive picture for the sake of power. And I suppose, actually, that's what all this is about. And it's actually what this whole podcast is about, is critiquing power, that being right brings you power. And then when you've got power, the way you stay in power is by staying right. But the problem is that power's not always just. It is a lot of the time, but quite often it's unearned or you've got a lot less legitimacy than you think, but people get drunk on power and they want to maintain it. And they maintain that by misguiding and confusing people. And that's something that needs to be addressed at all levels of society, not just by men, but men have most of the power. So that's why I was talking about this. Um, Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this has been the first episode of the second series of the Anti-Mask podcast. It's been a bit of a, a convoluted one in itself. Um, I've definitely gone down lots of different lines of thought. That's why, you know, I said at the beginning, podcasts are probably not the most reliable way of fact-checking and exploring discussions anyway. But, you know, I get why they're popular. I'm doing one because I want to share my thoughts with people and... I guess the takeaway from today is go out and have a discussion with someone, someone you feel comfortable, someone you feel safe with, you know, not some stranger or some far right intellectual. <laughs> um, but go out and have a discussion and be a bit more mindful of how you're going into that discussion. Do you do you really want to hear what that other person has to say? I appreciate that when that person has particularly dangerous views then maybe it's not worth your energy, particularly if your identity means that the views they're sharing attack your identity a lot more personally than they might do me, who, apart from being a little bit gender non-conforming and a little bit queer sexually, generally presents as... A lo People assume I am a straight white man until I start to talk about myself. So I feel lucky to be able to go into almost any discussion and not feel immediately too threatened by an opinion that is shared. But, you know, this podcast, I want it to connect with people who generally are a bit more privileged in society. And I want those people to go and have discussions and be more mindful of how they're engaging with people because there's nothing wrong with being a little bit wrong. Thanks so much, guys. Um, do please share this podcast or any other episodes with people if you've enjoyed it. Please follow us on Instagram at anti-mask, I think, dot podcast. And I'm going to try and be a bit more proactive on Twitter this year. Um, but thanks so much, guys. And wishing you a lovely time wherever you are. <laughs>